from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon. I'm Rick Pearson. Welcome to this, the final edition of the Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So, as always, be safe, take a break, grab a beverage, and we'll try to get you prepared for the rest of the week. Well, Roger, what what terrific weather. I mean, yeah, it's a little chilly, but... Oh, I'd rather have this than like 110 in the shade. <laughs> yeah, well, you and me both. <laughs> yeah. And born and raised in Chicago, went through those hot summers, Yes, uh, you know, with nothing but a garden hose to cool you off. Right, right. Um, but still, I, I find as I've gotten older, I'd rather have it a little cooler. Yeah, no, and, and I did not imagine, for example, that here in mid-June I would still be wearing a hoodie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of people complaining about that. I don't, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm yeah. okay with it. I'm well, okay. I didn't wear a jacket today because I figured, oh, it's a little warmer today. And then I got downtown, and having go, come from the parking lot to the station, I forgot about the winds. Same deal. Yeah. Same deal. Now, I, I knew about the winds, mm-hmm. but it felt so darn nice yeah. in the sunshine mm-hmm. that I thought, well, you know, walking over here here I, I i didn't want to carry a coat right and right. the hoodie was just perfect but nice. now just in the last kind of hour uh, the wind is starting you know the shadows change mm-hmm. and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing and the wind is shifting around a little bit but yeah. uh, it's been nice to have the windows open isn't it though yeah and and not running air conditioning mm-hmm. not uh, it's oh yeah i and I was thinking of you yesterday oh because I, I noted on my Twitter mm-hmm. uh, a tweet from CBS Sports that they were showing golf. Yes. And I know how much you love golf. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm going, wow. Other than, I think uh, that's the first sports I've watched aside from like Korean baseball at <laughs> one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> But I thought it it was great. And, yeah, you know, you'd kind of do miss the crowds and sure. the, uh, the crowd reaction on shots and everything. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I know that's your favorite part of when you play is getting the crowd reaction for well, your Well, I mean, it's Roger's Army. You know, I've, I've inherited Arnie's Army. And, you know, it's it's been a little rough at the beginning of the season. So far, it's been a, a crowd of one, an army of one. Yeah, hard to assemble the army. Right? Yeah, but, uh, you know, the, the words gotten around, they're starting to come out. Are they? Are they? No. I, so have you? Have you been out? Yeah, yeah. We uh, uh, went out golfing um, a week ago, Friday, and then last Wednesday. Um, Very good. Worked yesterday and and today. Right. Um, but I've been, I, believe it or not, I've been busy on stuff that doesn't require me to be outside. I've been busy on a fundraiser for childhood cancer. I've been busy with my book. Right. Um, and, and just busy keeping an eye on the news. I'm yeah, a news well, hound. I, yeah, I'm a right. junkie, you we're, know. We're both that way. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I I used to play golf a lot when I lived down in Springfield. Ah, and and okay. part of it was you had 
you could play. I, I remember one year, the, the minimum temperature had to be 50, mm-hmm. but I played at least one month, one day in every month of the year down there. And it's a little bit warmer down there than it can be in like Chicago. like a 10-degree shift yeah. sometime yeah. In, the, in the fall and the spring. Uh, also, it's, it's, it is a bit more affordable down there, I should oh. say. Well, it, yeah. I, I, first of all, I had to wait. All of us had to wait until the Chicago courses opened right. up. Right, right. Uh, so that wasn't until a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, I think about a week and a half, and so we had to open that, and then the new rules. So now you you can't just walk in, right? You, you know, you have to go online, you have to reserve, and yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, minor inconvenience, um, but um, but I could imagine being able to golf longer in Springfield because of that minor change. Um, even though I have had my winter. Uh, Nanook of the North uh, Parka <laughs> Snow Parka on uh, trying to swing That's my a club. Guy. That's my guy. <laughs> in, in in March, early March. I want videos of that. Yeah, <laughs> there are pictures. I, I'm yes. sure there are. <laughs> but well, but and and I don't know about. I mean, you 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 play often. Uh, I thought you were about to say you play awful, which no, is true. Often, either way, often. either way, go ahead. Well, yeah. <laughs> but but I think you'll appreciate because when they started these social distancing rules, mm-hmm. I'm going. Has anybody seen us play golf? Yeah, we're always far apart. Well, yeah, there yeah. is. You know, the only time you're close is when you get to the tee box, the tee box, and on the green if you ever make it there. I was just going to say, yeah, see, right. that's not a certain. <laughs> no, that's you know, not. You, you, after eight, you pick up. Uh-huh. You know, it's time to move on. Exactly. You don't want the uh, the golf ranger coming and yelling at you. Yeah, right, right. Uh, I spend most of my time in the trees. Yeah, um, and so I'm way far apart from from everybody. They usually wait for me on the on the uh, green, uh, and, <laughs> and as I come walking out, holding my ball up, saying, "You guys go ahead. I'm done." So, well, when I was in uh, working at the Rockford Register Star, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, Lynn Martin, who was the congresswoman and former labor secretary, and she married to uh, federal judge Harry Leinenweber. And she said, uh, Harry wants you to go play golf at Rock oh. Country Club. And, you know, that's one of those things where you just peer in over the fences because mm-hmm. you're, mm-hmm. you're never in. Mm-hmm. And so we played, and it was bad. And at the end, uh, Judge Leinenweber says, so what'd you think? And I said... I think it's only appropriate that I spent so much time in jail playing with the federal judge because <laughs> I was in the trees, I was in the sand, mm-hmm. I was in the deep grass. Uh, yeah, it it but it, what a beautiful course. You know, yeah, it's that's sure. my fault. That's you know right. That's not the. the it's not necessarily golfers. that the course was difficult. Oh, it was. It was. Well, but, yeah, but still, a difficult course for me. I have found over the years uh, is only difficult. Because other people who are really, really good find it difficult. I still find it the same because I don't hit it as far as, right. you, as well, real see, good golfers. I mean. If you know and, your shots. Yeah. And you know how far you can hit something. Exactly. You can adjust to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's how I played there you all go. these years was, you know, look for bogey golf, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to get you out on, sun, on Wednesday afternoons. I'd love to do it. Yeah. I'd love to do Beautiful. it. Beautiful. I'll have to take me about uh, two weeks to get the rust off the clubs in storage. but Not uh, a problem. I, I will def- absolutely take you up on that. You got it, buddy. All right. Well, 
Roger's here uh, with all the news. And, Roger, I do want to just take a moment to thank you, Dave Schwan, the rest of the great WGN News Department here at the radio station. It's been terrific to have the opportunity to work with all of these voices that I've heard and known for a long time and then also become part of their journalism family. And that's the thing about WGN's history. It's always been considered a family. So please keep up the good work. Will do, definitely, and it's it's been an honor and a pleasure working with you and learning from you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, producer Casera is here. I want to give her a special thank you and shout-out. She's been on my side. Uh, she knows the flow of the show. She knows the conversations that help inform the show. Uh, she's here to field your phone calls. We're at 312-981-7200. also want to thank uh, my previous producers, uh, Jasmine, Jazzy, and uh, Rachel. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to take a quick break on this final edition of the Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. Time to take our spin through the week in politics. And we continue with the continued uh, fallout over the George Floyd death in the custody of police in Minneapolis, the continued fallout, uh, also the continued controversy over the use of military assets being involved in protests and civil unrest. Yesterday, President Trump delivered the commencement address at a physically distant ceremony at West Point. Trump thanked the National Guard for responding to the pandemic, as well as to the protests. I want to take this opportunity to thank all members of America's armed forces in every branch, active duty, National Guard and Reserve, who stepped forward to help battle the invisible enemy, the new virus that came to our shores from a distant land called China. We will vanquish the virus. We will extinguish this plague. I also want to thank the men and women of our National Guard who respond with precision to so many recent challenges from hurricanes and natural disasters to ensuring peace, safety, and the constitutional rule of law on our streets. That's the president at West Point yesterday. There's still fallout over the clearing of Lafayette Park across from the White House so that the president could get a photo op at a church. Trump was accompanied by the attorney general, William Barr, other cabinet officials, uh, officials including General Mark Milley. Mark Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he walked as military units were mobilized to clear the park from peaceful protesters. Uh, Last week, Milley admitted that his appearance was a mistake. Many of you saw the result of the photograph of me at Lafayette Square last week. That sparked a national debate about the role of the military in civil society. I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned, uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I have learned from, and I sincerely hope we all can learn from it. We who wear the cloth of our nation come from the people of our nation, and we must hold dear the principle of an apolitical military that is so deeply rooted in the very essence of our republic. And this is not easy. It takes time and work and effort, but it may be the most important thing 
each and every one of us does every single day. That's General Mark Milley. He is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, making an apology for appearing with the president on that photo op, photo op trip across Lafayette Park. In the U.S. Senate, Illinois' senior senator, Democrat Dick Durbin, sought to have the Senate Judiciary Committee, headed by Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, approve an amendment to rebuke Attorney General Barr for his role in directing the clearing of Lafayette Park. Graham and Senate Republicans rejected that amendment. Here's Durbin's argument. At this critical moment in our nation's history, one would expect the United States Senate Judiciary Committee to consider this measure to stand up and speak up, to exercise our oversight duties over the Attorney General and the Department of Justice, to examine why lawful protesters engaged in their First Amendment rights were attacked by federal law enforcement officers, to discuss the pervasive systemic racism, the incidents of police brutality, and the ongoing fight in this country for civil rights. These issues go to the heart of this committee's jurisdiction. Instead, as we've learned, the chairman and majority are determined that this historic distinguished committee will instead focus on the Mueller investigation into Russia's 2016 election interference. The streets of America and the world are afire, figuratively, with the passion people feel for justice. We are in the midst of a pandemic. We know full well the state of the economy. And yet, we are going to do the bidding of the president to consider an issue which may be of some value to him in his re-election campaign. That's Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin speaking at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Other kind of military fallout as well, all spurred again by the death of George Floyd. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is having statues of Confederate officials moved out of the nation's capital in some of the protests that have gone on throughout the country, particularly in the South, where Confederate uh, military or Confederate officials had statues. Those statues are being taken down. Uh, Even the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, has now agreed to a three-year phasing out of the use of Confederate military names on U.S. military bases. I say even the Senate Armed Services Committee, because that's a Republican-controlled committee, Senate uh, controlled by Republicans. And I say even because the move comes, despite the president's vehemence, that those names should stay as part of history. Here's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I want to tell you something. The American people know these names have to go. These names are white supremacists that uh, said terrible things about our country. This is like over 100 years after World War II. Some of these names were given to these bases. And they, they, you listen to who they are and what they said, and then you have the president make a case as to why a base should be named for them. He seems to be the only person left who doesn't get it. Now, it's been interesting in some of the defense of the naming of those bases is that some are saying that that was those bases were named as kind of a reconciliation with the South. But in numerous, numerous cases, those bases were named during or after World War II. 
It's a long time between the end of the Civil War in 1865 and the 1940s of World War II. Trying to deal with the issue of race at an important moment in the nation's history, the president went to a faith roundtable in Dallas, Texas last week. It's interesting that the top three law enforcement officials in Dallas, uh, who are all African American, were not invited to attend that event. At this event, Trump said it was wrong for people to mislabel millions of people as racists. Americans are good and virtuous people. We have to work together to confront bigotry and prejudice wherever they appear. But we'll make no progress and heal no wounds by falsely labeling tens of millions of decent Americans as racist or bigots. We have to get everybody together. We have to be in the same, same path, I think, Pastor. If we don't do that, we have, we have problems. And we'll do that. We'll do it. I think we're going to do it very easily. It'll go quickly and it'll go... It'll go very easily. It'll go quickly and it'll go very easily. Uh, Terms eerily uh, reminiscent of the president's description initially of the coronavirus. Uh, Trump has repeatedly sought to tout his work for African Americans, even comparing his tenure as greater for African Americans than that of Abraham Lincoln. Now, he walked that back a bit in speaking to Fox News anchor Harris Faulkner, an African American. But the exchange the two had seemed a bit awkward. In general, I mean, the economy is the great unifier, right? I think I've done more for the black community than any other president. And let's take a pass on Abraham Lincoln because he did good, although it's always questionable. You know, in other words, the end result. We are free, Mr. President. But we are free. (laughs) We are free, she says. The political group Republican Voters Against Trump is airing an ad in North and South Carolina, as well as in Washington, D.C. And this is an interesting ad since it uses comments made by Lindsey Graham. Remember, Graham was a one-time opponent of Trump's for the 2016 Republican presidential nomination, and now he's one of Trump's top allies in Congress. But Graham's words about Trump, and on behalf of Joe Biden, get used against him in this ad. I want to talk to the Trump supporters for a minute. What is Donald Trump's campaign about? He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. And you know how you make America great again? Tell Donald Trump to go to hell. If you can't admire Joe Biden as a person, it's probably you got a problem. <laughs> you need to do some self-evaluation. Because what's not to like? He is as good a man as God ever created. He said some of the most incredibly heartfelt things that anybody could ever say to me. He's the nicest person I think I've ever met in politics. This is a defining moment in the future of the Republican Party. We have to reject this demagoguery, and if we don't reject Donald Trump, we've lost the moral authority, in my view, to govern this great nation. That's the ad from the group Republican Voters Against Trump featuring Lindsey Graham. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. This is The Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson. Happy Flag Day. Happy Graduation Day for the CPS students. Happy Graduation Day 2020 class. Well, joining us now on the show, 
is a, a group of, of my good friends, and we've got so much to talk about in our kind of virtual roundtable. I wish they were all here in the studio, but of course, that's the way things go these days. Joining us on the show is Bob Sector. He's a former colleague of mine and editor at the Chicago Tribune. He's now with Cranes. Brian Bernadoni is the founder of Aurelius Public Affairs and a longtime political insider. Speaking of political insider, Eric Elk is the former chief of staff to former U.S. Senator Mark Kirk, and he's a government relations director. And Amanda Vinicky, WTTW Channel 11 correspondent and the unofficial guest host of The Sunday Spin. All of you, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Good evening. Yeah, happy, happy furlough, Rick. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll talk about that later, too. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to start things off, and uh, maybe, Bob, I'll just go with you. And that's why I wish we were all here, because then I could point at you instead. Um, but I, I, I think when I look at things today, and we've looked at the days and weeks of protest and the uh the death of george floyd kind of being this uh, trigger event after months of dealing with a pandemic um i think uh, it looks to me like we're in some kind of an inflection point in this nation when it comes to issues of race and when it comes to issues of law enforcement, and when it comes to issues of governance, Bob. Well, well, we've you know we've heard inflection point a lot on a variety of matters. You would have thought, uh, um, you know, when the when the shootings in Connecticut of all those right. little Sandy kids Hook. happened, you would have thought that would have been an inflection point, but apparently it wasn't. Um, you would have thought the Vietnam War and the, and the demonstrations and all that was an inflection point, and it was to some extent. But um, uh, these racial divisions that we, you know, that have gone on for 400 years in this country, uh, before it was a country, um, you know, are very entrenched, very hard to get rid of, and despite what Trump says, they're not just going to go away easily. No, and then, I mean, that was my thought, too, is that this is not, it's like the coronavirus, it's not you snap your fingers and you've got, you, you know, you've got a yeah. vaccine for it. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts? I think it's also a, an inflection point about the issues of equity, um, that for a long time, uh, the issues of have versus have not have been generally brushed been brushed aside, I think, not only by uh, by the media and, and, and by, by corporations, but by politicians. And we're at that point where for too long, too many politicians have been making too many promises to too many people, and they haven't been, uh, they haven't been kept. So I think that inflection point is also one worthy of this moment and where the crisis expands. Well, I guess that's why I kind of mentioned government, too, here, because it seems like a greater demand that, that there be some government accountability, Brian? I, I, I think it's not only government accountability, but it's a big part of it, Rick. I think it's also, though, this idea or this notion that um, promises made, promises kept, but not enough 
not enough is really trickling down. I think um, one of the things that may be part of the whole discussion, for example, were the tax cuts that were put into place, where there was supposed to be a trickle down. And as we saw during the 80s with Reagan, and again, what we're seeing now, the trickle down isn't going down to the folks who need it. And that's clearly part of the message that's out in the street. And frankly, some of the messaging that's coming from the politicians on changes on, uh, on in government contracts and things along that line. There's a desire from, uh, quote-unquote, so-called minorities to actually now say, wait a minute, we're 36% of the population. Why aren't we getting 36% of the contracts? So I think that is going to be the, the pressure points moving forward. Eric Elk, what do you think? I agree with that. I think there's there's got to be more focus on equity. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're starting to be, but they're... We haven't gone far enough. I think that there's more that can be done, and um, it, it's it's you know time for time for action. You know, I think we we've come, you know, we've seen and and we need to listen more. And you know, the folks who are you know elected leadership positions, you know, some are demonstrating that they they aren't listening. And, um, you know, we, we have that opportunity in November with, with the upcoming elections. Amanda Venicky. So Illinois, I think, is in a sort of different place here than some of our peer states, particularly in the Midwest, just given the political dynamic, the power structure. You have Governor J.B. Pritzker, for example, even before all of this, who had been talking and setting an agenda that, granted, did not get passed because everything was so waylaid by the coronavirus, talking about some of the very things that have come up, um, not certainly things like defund the police, abolish the police, and that's where you're going to have just sort of a, a different pivot point where he's saying, no, I, I don't get into that, despite, of course, that being very much a movement of Black Lives, Ma- Black Lives Matter protesters and activists who say that that's really the only answer, that trust is so broken. Um, but he was talking about things like reducing sentencing and mandatory minimums and with the for, with the legalization of marijuana um, in general. That is part of the campaign that you see elsewhere in terms of looking at just the sheer numbers of particularly black people who are at in jail, who are in prison at disproportionate rates. So Illinois has already started to move forward, and I do think that just given the General Assembly makeup, we will see some movement there. We, you're, like I said, just seeing that breakdown, not only in Illinois, but also in the, in the city council, along a, a different sort of lines than states like you know Wisconsin, for example. Brian, I want to go back to your, your comment uh, about uh, inequality. And I guess what what can government do to try to overcome the the great inequalities that exist economically, income wise, uh, housing, those kinds of things? What 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 can government actually do? Well, I think there are certain areas where government has control, and I think you've seen an ordinance put forward this past week by Ray Lopez. Uh, was often the foil for uh, for the mayor, but strangely, his his ideas are starting to get parity with her ideas as far as the path moving forward. And he has a ordinance that's moving, you know, that that's been introduced that 
basically says that the amount of money that are going into contracts should be divvied up by uh, by the percentage of the race within the city of Chicago. Now, do I think that's going to pass? I, I don't think so. But do I think the discussion is going to put a bigger focus on uh, not enough contracts and not enough of the money in those contracts are going to uh, black and brown contractors? Yeah, so that's something government can control. Private market's harder for them to control, and you mentioned housing, and that's always been a, a difficult path for uh, the city council to go down as far as how they divvy up land and affordable housing and things along that line. The contracts, I think that's fully within the purview of the mayor and, and the city council to uh, ask hard questions and provide uh, results rather quickly. We're going to continue our roundtable discussion with Bob Sector, Brian Bernadoni, Eric Elk, and Amanda Vinicky. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me on the phone is Bob Sector of Cranes, Brian Bernadoni of Aurelius Public Affairs, Eric Elk, and Amanda Vinicky from Channel 11. Uh, this is our uh, farewell edition roundtable. Uh, I want to go to kind of the issue of dealing with policing. And we've seen conversations going on uh, in the nation's capital about issues of uh, trying to legislate use of force, legislation to ban chokeholds, those kinds of things. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure many people do have confidence that congress you know will act on this topic although you're hearing you know support from republicans and for the most part it seems that the white house is leaving this matter and negotiations to congressional republicans but i still don't know that i have a lot of uh, confidence that uh, much is going to be done in washington particularly uh when uh the the issue of kind of uh, indemnification of police is being described as a poison pill. Gentlemen, Amanda. Yeah, you know, I'm with you. Obviously, there is so much energy right now, so much of a push. Um, and that said, I, I, you can never forget how much <laughs> politicians are going to have their eye on the next election and how much energy th- that is going to take. And uh, the reality is, I believe that there are going to be calculations that members of Congress are making, and that is going to be first and foremost. Um, as I, I think Bob pointed out, there was energy like this. There has been energy, not quite, uh, of course, looking like this with people taking to the streets, but after various mass shootings, and that resulted in very little action in Washington. And so uh, this is to my point earlier, where um, this is a political dynamic you you cannot forget to consider. And in D.C., that is one where there is a a partisan divide and a whole lot of ways to uh, kill a measure, particularly when all eyes are focused on November. Well, Bob, and and as I said, kind of as a predicate here is that you do at least have Republicans talking about areas where there could be an agreement. But again, when you have uh, uh, changing qualified immunity, which is something that the Democrats are pushing, um, that that seems to be the major sticking point. 
well, that's one of them. I mean, that'll that'll be a big one. But um, uh, yeah, Congress has a way of grinding uh, promising ideas down to nothing, and uh, we've seen it time and again. I, I you know, the, the big question is, uh, you may see a little some thing, some change in the next few months, but it's but nothing significant is really going to happen until after the November election, and then only if it's a Democratic blowout. Um, and then you might see some change, but um, the Republican Party has, and, you know, I, I apologize, Eric is on the phone here, but, you know, the Republican Party has lurched so far to the right, has become so reactionary that you're just not going to get meaningful reform out of Congress as long as the Republicans are in charge of at least one House of Congress. Well, Eric, I I mean, I find it interesting with all of this going on, and it was kind of the policy of the the Trump administration to uh, remove the Department of Justice from looking at pattern and practices, as it's called, in policing. Uh, the things that are subject right now to many of the criticisms, many of the complaints, and uh, not not working to enter into consent agreements with police departments that that ran counter to uh, kind of the president's policy, and now you're seeing uh, more and more people wanting to have a independent Department of Justice, uh, Civil Rights Division, etc being part of what should be constituted as good policing. Eric? Yeah, no, I... I, <laughs> I gave I, you a um, lot to chew on there, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about that. But I, I think that, you know, DOJ should bring those back. They should be looking at those patterns. You know, I mean, uh, seeing these scenes uh, last, last few last few weeks here, you know, one thing that strikes me, is um you know the the police forces acquiring military equipment um I, I think needs to be questioned. I also think the idea of police officers in basically BDUs battle you know battle uniforms um should be should be potentially questioned or put on the table because I think that just puts someone in a in a complete different mindset. Um, you know, when they're in the field and they have on kind of battle-ready uniform versus a, you know, a police peace uniform um, when they're out in the street. And it, it changes the mindset, perhaps. I'm not a police officer. I haven't been in law enforcement. But, I, you know, looking at these scenes, um, that's it's kind of disturbing. And it, it's something that I think needs to be looked at. Well, and- oh, I, str- I, I struggle with that. Um I, I, forgive me for jumping in like sure. this, but I think the idea that we're going to study something that is so clear that if you're an African-American, you have a three times better chance of getting uh, getting shot by a police officer than white. I think the frustration that's coming from the Black Lives Movement and from the politicians, and I'll bring it to a more local level, I think the frustrations of, of, of Mayor Lightfoot are not going to allow for some of the patience level that you would see at Congress. When you have the mayor suggesting that uh, we should be licensing police officers and is preparing legislation in Springfield, Springfield is going to show, I think, a lot more pivot and have a lot more 
lot more to say, I think, right now than, than will happen on Capitol Hill. But when you talk about the political metric of this thing, Look, cops, there are good cops and there are some cops that that have not been, you know, the bad apple argument. But, you know, the cops that are out there, the rank and file, the hardworking men and women who are putting on the uniform that are trying to do their job well, they don't like bad cops either. But these same cops that are out there trying to do this job also haven't had a contract for three years. So I think the political metrics that Amanda talked about, that's a real one. But I think it's local first that members of the Illinois General Assembly are going to have to deal with the pressure points from the FOP, amongst others, saying, wait a minute, you want to license us, but we haven't had a contract in three years. We've got to come to some kind of realization that that this is – this is not working actually on, on several fronts. But I think when we start talking about research, whether it's in law enforcement or economic de- development and equity uh, disparity issues, I think those that are being researched have said enough is enough. Uh, and to, to Bob's point, they want to see something happen now, not later. Well, Amanda, we've already seen that uh, it's kind of the, the governor has said that, in essence, he's kind of looking looking at considering some kind of a package for lawmakers to consider. But at the same time, sees no need necessarily to call the General Assembly into special session until there may be some kind of a consensus on what that package may look like. And given the various issues involved here, despite the fact that it's one-party Democratic control, I'm not so sure it's going to be easy to put a, a, a package together for Springfield to consider. I, I agree, and we really haven't seen any sort of material package presented other than, again, in general, it appears as if there might be a consensus, and we had even seen some of this begin to move in under the Router administration. You have seen while there was a time that politicians wanted to steadily increase penalties, the pendulum has swung and it is very much the opposite. I think there will be some form of consensus around that. What would have been seen as um, you know, a political no way, no how in terms of reducing sentencing and punishing, that is going to change because there's been, this movement is so galvanized, there has been an education and because, again, there are the super democratic majority or super majority of Democrats in the General Assembly. Um, policing or police licensing. You might even see that. While the Chicago FOP has been reticent, the there are statewide organizations like the Illinois Association of the Chiefs of Police that say that they're open to that, that they want the discussion pointing to the, the we talked, for example, with the vice president, the incoming president of the organization who said, yes, the worst thing for a good cop is a bad cop. But it is going to be in these other questions, the FOP contract in Chicago and uh, any sort of package that gets further into um, what happens to a police in terms of not using or turning off a body camera. What, what is the consequence for that? Um, what about enforcement? We have already in Chicago a consent decree that the FOP doesn't like, is dragging their feet on, and wants at least to, to be slowed down. And on the other end, frustration from members of the Black Lives Matter movement and those who want to completely defund the CPD saying, where are you? We're years 
years in, how is this still happening? So um, certainly some intractable arguments going to be met in Springfield, but I think they they will come forward with a package. The timing is when what exactly when it, it will be in it is the difficult part to figure out. Yeah, well, Bob, I, I look at the issue of, of licensing as, you know, it, it sounds good. If a if a, a beautician has to be licensed, a nail stylist has to be licensed, uh, you know, why not Why not police officers? And obviously, there's certification issues that they go through. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, are we just going to change the word certification to licensing? I mean, certainly uh, law enforcement is a profession, and in most professions, there's something known as continuing education. And, of course, all we're hearing about more and more, like the coronavirus was testing, testing, testing with the law enforcement community. It's training, training, training. Yeah, well, it's also who is doing the training. I mean, most of the training that cops on the beat get um, are from veteran cops, and some of these veteran cops, not all of them, clearly, but some of them, um, have some very bad habits. Um, And, you know, you... um, But these things are difficult. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's not like you can snip... (laughs) Sounds like Trump. You can you can snap your fingers and it'll be fixed. Um, you know you can set up a licensing regimen and a training regimen, and then imposing it is both expensive and difficult. There are you know thousands and thousands of cops, not just in Chicago, but across the state of Illinois. So uh, you know it, it, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but it's not simple. No, and of course I don't know. I represented the realtors, and we have we have sixty thousand of them across the, across the the state, and it's instantaneous if you don't do your continuing education. I think uh, the the mechanics are there, it's, but I think to your point to your point, Bob, it's it's the quality of the instructors and who's actually doing the instructing and what that actually flares out to be. I think is going to be the real problem. Hold on just a second. Um, Amanda, go, Amanda, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, my, my belief is that this licensing measure is meant to say if there is a bad actor, a police officer who commits wrongdoing, but not perhaps to the point of completely losing, uh, waiting until there is a trial, think something like Jason Van Dyke at this point, it would be losing a license before it gets anywhere near there and looking more at records of misconduct and that would be losing of a license so because there already is education um, although of course there are quibbles including with the FOP contract in terms of how that education should work what it should look like and who should lead it including with Mayor Lightfoot's suggestion that there be community involvement and youth involvement that there's been pushback on from the FOP here already such that there is more of a record so that a, a disciplined officer or severely disciplined doesn't end up at another police force exactly is, is kind of the bottom line which, which happens all the time unfortunately right. um, so um, somehow there you know there has to be a a, a list a record a, um, um, you know a database and you would think we would be at that stage by now. We're going to continue our roundtable with Bob Sector, Brian Bernadoni, Eric Elk, and Amanda Vinicky. But right now, though, it's time for the news. Now the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday evening. Welcome to the final hour of the final 
Sunday Spin on WGN. Mm-hmm. Just before uh, I went uh, on the air, uh, I saw this story break that uh, the Voice of America, uh, a federally funded independent news organization, uh, was banned from uh, interviewing people with the Centers for Disease Control uh, or getting CDC documents uh, due to a White House tweet, opinion statement, alleging that the Voice of America uh, was a a propagandist uh, for the Chinese government. Um, In a statement from the Voice of America, The VOA said efforts such as those outlined in the CDC memo can result in the kind of chilling effect on our journalism that we regularly see in the markets we broadcast to that have no free press, including in China and Russia. Just just something for folks to think about today. I thought that was uh, very interesting. Well, joining, rejoining the show is our panel, Bob Sector of Cranes, Brian Bernadoni of Aurelius Public Affairs, Eric Ulk, and Amanda Vinicky with WTTW Channel 11. And uh, folks, I thought we'd switch things around to talk a little bit about uh, pandemic politics. Um, over the yesterday, the, the state Republican Party held its uh, virtual state convention due to the restrictions on gathering due to the coronavirus. And one of the templates that seems to be part of what we can expect from uh, the playbook from uh, Republicans in Illinois is to try to seize upon uh, anger, frustration, and criticism over the uh, various stay-at-home phasing reopening uh, of Illinois uh, under the Pritzker administration, and that Republicans see that as something that they could potentially grow on uh, as an issue to uh, looking forward to the fall. Uh, Bob Sector, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, it's it's kind of fascinating because we're talking about this just as several there's over 20 states now where the uh, the the caseloads and the deaths are uh, and the hospitalizations are increasing rapidly um meanwhile Illinois is on the opposite end of the spectrum where we're we're coming down considerably actually a and, new york a new york times study shows that yeah. illinois has had the uh, steepest decline in in, mm-hmm. in cases uh, among the states you know, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see, you know, as you get into the fall when this is, thing is expected to increase again, um, uh, you're, you're going to see a lot of anxiety about the about the coronavirus more so than even now, and and uh, and it's an argument that is um, going to be hard to maintain when you've got this thing. Spreading like wildfire, as is widely predicted, you know, um, as we head to the election. Um, uh, obviously, there's a mindset amongst um, some people that government shouldn't tell me what to do. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, underlying that mindset is that <clears throat> I get to do whatever I want, even if it affects you. Um, and, you know, that's, that's where we are today in this divided country. 
Uh, Eric Elk, I'd like your thoughts on that that kind of a, a pandemic political strategy. Yeah, I, I don't see how um, I don't see how pandemic can you know it doesn't see party lines you know in this whole uh, notion that we have to. Uh, one party wants to reopen versus another one who doesn't is uh, is unfortunate that some are making that argument. But, you know, I, I think that what the governor has tried to do is base base everything on science. And uh, I don't know if it was you or Bob just mentioning, you know, looking at all the all the charts, charts Illinois has seen a, a great decline in this. And I think everyone would agree, uh, you know, on this roundtable that, yeah, maybe it's it's not the best, uh, you know, to have to change our our lifestyle a little bit or quite a bit, but that's it's worth doing, and we all have to do that. We're all in this together, and we 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 all want to stay healthy until there's a vaccine. And so this notion, you know, trying to insert partisan uh, rhetoric in this is, I think, just a, a, a mistake. Well, Amanda, I kind of see this as kind of a follow-up to what we've seen in the state about where uh, partisan support lies and that, you know, the the, uh, early criticisms uh, of the stay-at-home orders, those kinds of things, were coming largely from downstate communities, uh, rural communities, and communities, for the most part, that are represented by Republicans. Yeah, there's definitely an alignment there, and I don't think that's going to go away. And certainly we have seen Illinois has 102 counties. 101 of them have had confirmed cases of the coronavirus. One is still an outlier there. Um, and, and so definitely you, you see this playing out where there are major population centers. I think people are more ready to accept places in Chicago, in the suburbs, where there is quite clearly an additional number of cases that people are more willing to accept the consequences of this. Um, so part of this is, I think, a political strategy. Part of part of it is real, where you have, um, I, I think, already in a political and economic divide playing out. Don't forget that next month, in a matter of weeks, the minimum wage is going to increase. And you really do have a lot of businesses that are hurting and in pockets of the state where there haven't been major COVID outbreaks. There is a frustration of why are we being held to the same standard as Chicago? So I, I, we see that play out time and time again in Illinois, and this is just another example of that. And Republicans perhaps seizing on what is uh, reality at, at, at a time where they haven't had much luck in Springfield. And I think we're going to see that. That's the early strategy. What surprised me, and granted, I know, Rick, you covered the virtual convention. Um, I admittedly was off yesterday and did I, not. I, I, did it, I did it so you didn't have to. Thank you for that. Um, but to me, one of the major things, I mean, obviously, who knows? There are so many unknowns about this pandemic. There are so many questions. There are those who I think even accepting of some of the restrictions feel frustrated by what they view as contradictions in it, particularly if you look at bars and taverns that say, hey, what the heck? We're not able to open. This is our livelihood. What's going on? I mean, there there are so many of those questions, and we don't know how this virus will play out in the fall. But something that I see coming up again is, of course, the graduated income tax constitutional amendment. And 
that his any talk of that has been eclipsed, of course, by both the pandemic and now by the demonstrations put in place by George Floyd. But um, that is going to be huge. And that's a pocketbook issue, which I think voters are going to give more attention to, particularly depending on also a consequence of all of this is where the, is the economy going to go? So we still have quite some time ahead before November for all of that to play out and wherever that will work in terms of each party's favor. We're speaking with Amanda Vinicky, WTTW Channel 11 correspondent, Eric Elk, Government Relations Director and a longtime political insider, Brian Burdentoni, Aurelius Public Affairs, and Bob Sector from Cranes. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me on the phone, Bob Sector of Cranes, Brian Bernadoni from Aurelius Public Affairs, Eric Elk, and Amanda Vinicky from WTTW Channel 11. And it would only be appropriate that on the last Sunday Spin, we would get a call from Ron. Ron, welcome to the Sunday Spin. Rick, just, I, I you don't have a question, but I, I just want to just... Thank you, Rick, and just let you know how much uh, I appreciate you. And I always will remember when you you invited me down uh, to 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 the station. Uh, you know, I, I I miss baseball a whole lot. I'm a big baseball fan, but I'm going to miss you more. But so let me get more to than my baseball. Question. Come on now, yeah, okay, right. enough of that, please. Right, right. More than baseball, okay. okay. So, so give, right. all right, get so the you know question. Me, Rick, I like to get right to the point. <laughs> you know, I, I want to talk about economics. Um, the Fed is projecting that probably for the next couple of years, they said even maybe several years, that unemployment is going to be high. We know the president was typically, you know, touts the economy that he runs on, but now the mayor is talking about a $700 million deficit. So how does um, uh, the economy play into all these factors, politics and social, at the end of the day, it has, we have to look at, you know, the economy and then where is this going. And, and, hey, Rick, all the best to you. I'll be looking. I know, you know, somewhere you'll be popping up, and, and I, I'll be looking for you. And all, all the best to you. Stay safe. And I appreciate you and your wonderful producers um, that you have had. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ron, and the here, same here to, to you. Um, I, I, I mean, I think to add on to Ron's question is the fact that, you know, before the pandemic, the economy was Trump's selling point for re-election. And the pandemic has upended everything as we know it. And, you know, the it's the economy stupid might still hold. Uh, but we it's again, it's this unknown, I guess, is, is the easiest way to say. It. I don't know, Brian? You know, I think most of the discussions that I've been involved in have been looking at the economic cycle in an 18-month flip that we're, we're in these assumption modes that what's going, what's happening now and a possible ramping up this fall is, is going to slow down an awful lot of economic plans. But I think 
again, I, I tend to come from the school that all politics is local, and so is the economic picture. And while the national economic picture has been reasonably good for most of the nation, Chicago and, and, and Illinois have been a laggard for a multitude of reasons that Amanda and Bob and Eric have all talked about even today. I think the concern moving forward, however, is we're in an interesting cycle here in Chicago and Cook because of the reassessment period that we're going through. So it's not just the picking of winners and losers that we've seen because of the pandemic, but the real fiscal impact that the tax assessment is going to have on the decision of businesses deciding to open or not. And are politicians going to be in the position immediately to start looking at what kind of incentives can we put forward to push Illinois into a competitive mode against states that have been, frankly, pretty good at poaching from us in the guise of Wisconsin and Indiana. So I think if we're looking towards the future, pressure points are going to have to be put on issues such as creating some relief for businesses, as Amanda has mentioned, on minimum wage or things along that line. But also, more importantly, incentive-type programs to bring businesses here in a state where it, it really is a challenge because of fiscal policies and mistakes made for generations. Yeah, and I think the latter part of that statement is, is very important because, you know, this is a state that has been teetering on the brink for a long time, Amanda. Well, I was just going to say, and all the more complicated, of course, that gets because you both want to attract business, perhaps give any sort of incentive. There is certainly the perennial discussion that really hasn't been tackled in terms of bringing down property taxes at a time when governments need money. They are, it's systemic. It is built up over years in both Chicago and Illinois, but all of that is all the more difficult now as you look at the most recent state budget, for example, you know, planning on borrowing $5 billion from the feds in hopes that the feds are going to come through with more money. And then you look at um, all, all of the costs that are going to be borne through businesses not being in operation during the pandemic, all, all of those extra costs. And frankly, to me, something that I've been just looking at in sort of my own neighborhood is we already have a changed economy where far less is done in person. There's a lot more people you know, shopping, buying, doing everything over the Internet and what that is going to mean for everything from just um, sales taxes, retail sales, and also just more vacant properties, perhaps, what it means for a downtown business office boom, what it means for neighborhood shops as they might decide, hey, what are, why would we bother to reopen given all these budget pressures in addition to the health concerns of another wave of COVID that well, would shut them down all over again? Yeah, so I many mean, complications. Eric, I mean, you, you have to think that, quote, when we reopen, whatever, it's still life's going to be dramatically changed and the ability to telecommute i mean we kind of this forced the forced zooming and all of the that we've been forced to do uh it's kind of moving that technology forward and and that offices don't need all the space they used to people aren't necessarily going to want to go into crowded offices or aren't going to want to go into crowded places i mean these are things that have to be kind of on the on that what was once a futuristic drawing board that are now front and center yeah i think that there's going to be a a number of companies everyone's going to have to kind of reevaluate and kind of look at that to your point about 
you know, are, is as much office space going to be needed? Um, I think everyone was forced to kind of work from home, telecommute um, in a really quick manner. I think the people who are able to are adapting quicker and, and learning ways of operating their business um, in this new environment are going to be the you know obviously those that that succeed and get creative, and that's the you know the ingenuity of of Americans. I mean, they're going to find ways to to get their goods or you know services to people in in a new environment, and you know it, it may it's taking a little bit of time, but it's also going to be incumbent upon. Um, all the all the different residents of the cities and the states to to adapt, and that's the thing I think we're really seeing a challenge with um, people adapting to the, to this new environment. Brian, with your history with the the realtors, I mean, what what do you see? The, the concern I have, I, I think, and it's something that that I think is very real, and it's 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 happening in live time is the fact that businesses, especially in the CBD, the loop, are 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 figuring out they don't need the space anymore. I, I think the, the change in work is permanent, and I think the challenges are going to be how that is dealt with from a property tax standpoint, because if, if you have uh, a high level of vacancy, that's going to change effectively the tax base. And when the tax base gets changed, the tax rates change. And how that looks in the CBD versus how that looks in the south suburbs or the north suburbs is going to be a real issue. Um, there are certain communities, as everyone knows, that have tax caps. And if the base drops too significantly because of changes in work or in changes in how retail is done, to Amanda's point, the result can be pretty catastrophic for tax-strapped, uh, tax cash-strapped communities that really can't move their base beyond what they have. If the tax rate can't move because of the tax cap, um, you're going to see austerity measures uh, that could impact us not just for a year or two, but for several years because of the of the of really the perfect storm that COVID has produced. Does that mean a change in tax policy? I'm not so sure about that. I think the fundamentals are still problematic for moving that kind of thing forward unless people want to look at uh, expanding an income tax uh, beyond what we expect or taxes on services. Uh, I think it's it's pretty unlikely. But even, even in the short term, though, the next two years, I think a lot of local governments, I'm a fire protection district commissioner, and I can tell you we're looking at our, our uh, 2021 budget in a lot different way than we were six months ago. We're speaking with Brian Bernadoni from Aurelius Public Affairs, Eric Elk, Government Relations Director, Amanda Vinicky, WTTW Channel 11 Correspondent, and Bob Sector of Cranes. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday evening and welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me on the phone are uh, good friends over uh, the history of the program, Bob Sector, Brian Bernadoni, Eric Elk, and Amanda Vinicky as we have one last uh, political roundtable. And I guess I wanted to just 
get your thoughts on what do you see happening as uh, November 3rd approaches? Are we just, obviously we're so still months away and the and i would say the campaign hasn't season hasn't really hit except this is like a campaign season that we've never seen and forcing candidates to adapt to you know virtual events those kinds of things and obviously illinois still retains its very bluish uh, streak here uh but we do have some uh, very interesting congressional races uh, in the suburbs and, and around the state. Uh, you have the freshman Sean Caston from Downers Grove, uh, freshman Lauren Underwood from Naperville. Uh, those are seats that are, are, are suburban seats that I think reflected again here kind of the changing demographics that we're seeing in Illinois and indeed on Meet the Press today uh, Chuck Todd showed some statistics from Pew Research about how the Republican advantage in the suburbs uh, from uh, 2016 has really almost evaporated and that Republicans are becoming more of the uh, representative of largely more rural populations, Democrats increasing their advantage in in urban populations. So, uh, Bob, I'll, I'll start with you. I mean, what what do you what do you see shaping up here? Well, actually, earlier in the show, Amanda mentioned probably the most um, important issue that's going to locally that's going to happen in this election, and, and that's the graduated income tax. And, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of furious campaigning over that. It's, it's gotten interrupted by the, the coronavirus and the economic collapse. And, and I don't know how that's going to into the, the arguments here. Um, I did see, I have seen, you know, some, some um, arguments that uh, this is no time to be changing the Illinois tax structure and, um, uh, you know, from, from the anti-graduated income tax crowd. Um, and a lot of, uh, frankly, spurious claims about it. But you're going to see more of that ramping up in the next several months. And it's, 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 it's not an easy sell. Colorado had a very similar proposal a few years ago, and it did not pass. Um, and uh, so it'll be, but Illinois is going to have even more financial problems if it doesn't pass. Well, and, and constitutional amendments are somewhat difficult uh, anyway, just by their nature. The way it appears on the ballot is often done in uh, that kind of bureaucraties, government bureaucraties that, you know, you, you can't really tell what it says, although the arguments will be definitely made, and you're right, this this has kind of brought a halt to what I expected to be fully the most expensive campaign in the state of Illinois for November 3rd was not going to be for any candidate. It was going to be uh, over the proposition on changing the state constitution. Brian? I think there's two things that, that kind of pop up to me, and it's, one's going to sound initially like a non sequitur, but I think it's important. It's been interesting watching the politicians who aren't running in November and how they've been dealing with COVID and other things versus those who are positioning. Um, Tom Dart comes to mind, uh, Tony Preckwinkle as well. I think both of them have stayed out of the politics and have just been governing, and it's been interesting to see that they haven't gotten into the conflict that a lot of the other politicians that are still posturing or or climbing are. 
The, the second thing that I think I'm thinking about when it comes to November, because uh, Illinois is so blue, is really, again, a local race. And it's the, the race that's going to be happening for border review with Dan Patlack, uh, the Republican, running against a non-endorsed Democratic candidate. Uh, the border review, I think, as we go down path of what's going on with the assessor's office and assessments, the border review is that next level where, frankly, businesses and commercial entities are really going to be looking for relief from somebody. And that race may actually get a little bit more attention, especially in the wake of the reassessment period in the south suburbs and the impending reassessment that's going to be happening in Chicago. So while I think we always like looking at, and it's fun to talk about what's going to happen in Washington, those races actually are pocketbook ones that go into the issues of, of what you pay in your taxes. Eric? Yeah, I think, you know, let's let's go back to the one of the old uh, questions. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Um, and I, I think a lot of people thinking about that, um, you know, are going to, to make decisions based on that and how leaders handled, um, how they saw their leaders handle the issues with the pandemic, how they, or, or not handle, how they saw leaders step up or not step up um, to address the, the issues of, of equity and the, and, the, and the injustices that we've seen here uh, highlighted. You know, it's been going on for a long time and, and needs to be addressed. Amanda. It is going to be um, fascinating to cover and however it is that we cover this, because again, an election taking place after what, and this virus is called the novel coronavirus because it's new. We, we don't know how it will play out, but uh, potentially under another wave of outbreaks of the virus that will once again bring people potentially back in their homes, changing canvassing, changes how we, Rick, as journalists cover this, um, and once again perhaps really putting a major uh, hurt in the economy. So I think there is a lot of fear right now, and there it's likely that that could be back again come November, but there's also so much energy, so many people that realize, I think, more than ever that the actions of their elected officials have a direct impact on them. And we're going to see that materialize here. We're going to see that materialize everywhere. Um, And it is going to be something presumably to behold. And I'm excited to be watching it, um, covering it, however that plays out. Um, And I want to, of course, before you close out. Oh, no, we've, we've, we've still got, we've still, we've still, okay, we've still no, got more time. I'm just saying it, 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 <laughs> there's going to be, a, this is a time for, I think, journalists to really be asking some hard questions when it comes to science, the economy, um, and, of course, uh, how that intersects with politics. So thank you for all that you do with that, uh, Rick, and that's going to play a very important role. Well, thank you. And, and I will say, you know, obviously because of the coronavirus, uh, you, it, how it's changed things, how we cover things, uh, not always to great satisfaction. Uh, but I was 
very disheartened to hear about the cancellation of the Illinois State Fair uh, because uh, that's kind of the, the political days of the Illinois State Fair to me has always been the really the true kickoff of, of the political season. Mm-hmm. Also, also, and change conventions. Who knows well, how? Where's your elephant ears? Where's your corn dog? I mean, come on. Well, it's not just it's not just that. There's also the effluence from the sheep barn that goes with it. So I mean, it's better than that. But but I, I am going to I truly am going to miss that. And and you know that's just that just is is so iconic about Illinois and politics. And that's how everything is just keeps changing. We're speaking with Amanda Vinicky from Channel Eleven, Eric Elk, Brian Bernadoni. I'm Rick Pearson. Don't forget Bob Sector. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. On the phone with Bob Sector, Brian Bernadoni, Eric Elk, and Amanda Vinicky. And Amanda, you touched on something about, um, you know, obviously what we're seeing with uh, the protests, uh, the continued protests of, of this kind of energy that exists. And, and uh, perhaps that realization that who you vote for really does have consequences. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking about how because of social distancing and everything, the the opportunity to sign people up to register to vote. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that is actually going on, but that would seem to be the you know an ideal kind of public thing to do. The question I have is, in the end, are these people who do march, who do feel very passionately, do they vote? Bob Secker. Right. Do, do they vote? It should be theoretically a, a bit easier, given that Illinois did put some more effort into a vote by mail program. So there's really no excuse to, to not be cast a ballot. Illinois has made it very easy to do that. That said, as you noted, social distancing practices, you're not going to have presumably those voter registration drives, um, people going door to door to politicians asking for people's votes. Will that energy that we see now taking to the streets continue into November, particularly if people um, maybe at some point throw their hands up in frustration and disgust with what hasn't been done at this time that they're calling for very quick action and change. I think there's a sort of a lack of patience there. So uh, we'll be watching all those numbers, but I don't have any good answers. I know I have seen during some of the actions, there have been efforts to get people to fill out their census forms while there have been mass gatherings. I have not seen a whole lot with voter registration drives at this point in time. Bob Sector? Yeah, well, we know historically that the, uh, that, uh, young people, you would think that they would be uh, very active politically uh, in voting, but they're not. They, um, it's very, it's older people who tend to turn out at the polls more. Now, is this that you know that we were talking about inflection points earlier? Is this that inflection point that uh, gets uh, young people to say, you know, I got to do something? And November 3rd is coming up, and I'm going to be part of that. Maybe it is. Um, but we, you know, we saw a little of that during the Vietnam War. Um, and, you know, it, it, it might happen again, but it's, it's the, 
physical conditions, as Amanda was saying, um, uh, it's just not as easy to sign up to vote. It's not as easy to, uh, you know, to set up that booth. Um, so or go door to door. So it's going to be it's going to be a fascinating exercise. Yeah, and, and Oprah today during her CPS graduation commencement remarks said that you know you're turning 18 graduates, you're an adult now, so that means you got to vote. So we'll see. Maybe maybe she has some sway. Well, and and obviously yes, we we have uh, uh, are going to embark on this much more massive vote by mail uh, application process in Illinois. Not that people are going to get automatically. A ballot, but they uh, many people who voted in 2018 general election, 2019 uh, city election, 2020 primary will automatically be sent an application for a mail-in ballot. And I wonder if that also doesn't change some of the dynamics because, as Bob, you pointed out that older people do tend to be regular voters. They also tend to be, for the most part ones that vote on election day, although we've seen how much early voting has expanded. Um, now you have you throw in the mail vote component, and we still don't know what the fall may bring as far as any potential resurgence. And so... Right, well, and where will the mail go? If you have a college student, for example, are they going to be on campus? Are they not? Will they receive that application? Or there, there are so many unknowns at this point that make it really complicated. Yeah, I, I, and and does but does that change some of the basic norms of what we consider as part of voting, Brian? You know, I, when I think about fall, and I, I know that we only have a few minutes left, but there's two things I've got to mention, and the answer is yeah, people are going to vote, and it's going to be higher numbers than we've seen, I think, across all spreads. But uh, two things that fall brings. One thing that fall brings is Spengoolian Halloween. It's his 40, 40, 41st. Uh, this will be, uh, we're celebrating 41 years of, of Chicago's uh, now national horror host. And it's always a good thing uh, because fall, fall is always exciting on that. But one, one other thing I think we missed during this discussion, and, and I, I know that Bob covered him over his time period and I got to work with him, but uh, Alderman Burton Terrace passed this past week. And, um, when I think of characters in politics, which is what got us all involved in one part or the other, because they were compelling, interesting, or funny people, and you got those personalities. Materis was one of the one of the last, and um, I just want to make sure that I extend, I think, from from all of us, uh, our condolences to the Materis family for that loss. Uh, Bert was an awful lot of fun to uh, contend with, and. He was a proven street fighter when when angered, and uh, a, a great colleague when you needed him, especially from the business community. So I wanted to make sure I got that in before I also thank you, Rick, for everything that you've done to help many of us in, in the public affairs space get our messaging out to to the public. Um, public affairs broadcasting is is not something that a lot of people understand, but it's vitally important to those of us who do this for a living. So, Rick, thank you very much for everything that you and the WGM team has done for us over many, many years. Well, thank you, Brian, and uh, thank you for it would only uh, be appropriate to have a Sven Gulli mention, of course, if you're involved in the show. <laughs> and I got it in. And, I got it in. Yes, you did. Yes, you, yes, you did. <laughs> I just wish I had the bell to hit. Yep, there, there it is. Okay. I got one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but Eric, if I could go back to 
that question. Now, now Brian says people are going to vote. They're going to vote more than ever. It's it's going to be heavy across the board. Uh, do you do you believe that as well? I sure hope so. Um, I I hope that with um, you know we 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 see the type of turnout that we've been seeing for a lot of these marches and things like that. However, you know, uh, was it a week ago we saw in Georgia? the lines and throughout this primary season in a number of states we've seen where they they've really fallen down um on delivering in in terms of having long lines and the machines not working and you know irregularities and problems across the board and so hopefully you know by november they're able to get these things worked out or if there's a you know vote by mail or to to make it as easy as possible. Um, you know, I get that people don't want to have to wait in the line, especially if um, uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is making a resurgence this fall, uh, which I hope it is not. But I, you know, I, I sure hope that we, we see a large turnout. Um, we, we owe it to ourselves and each other. Um, especially after all we've been through, and uh, and as I said, the the legislation provides for even reminders too to to do this, and there will be drop off boxes, uh, secure drop off boxes uh, for people that don't trust the mail to be able to to drop their ballots in. I found it interesting. Of course, we you had Republicans opposed to this, and Illinois does have one of the most liberal uh, laws regarding vote by mail it used to be back in the day you used to have to basically show up with a doctor's note to say you weren't going to be in town to vote and now there's no excuse absentee voting vote by mail uh, but you have certainly with president trump who despite having voted by mail uh opposed to this talking about the great fraud that exists and at the same time uh, in looking at some of uh, campaign emails today from republican candidates uh, they're all uh, pointing out to save the date for the day that you can apply for a vote by mail application, so it's you know it, it's kind of trying to trying to have things all different ways. Consistency in politics has has never occurred. So. Well, yeah, I gave up. I gave up looking for that a long time ago. I think you have to agree, Rick. Frankly, I think we'd be lucky enough if we could even figure out how much baseball is going to be played before the end of this year. Uh, yes, <laughs> we, that and maybe a little hockey. I wouldn't mind that as well. Well, folks, uh, I want to thank you uh, for uh, being part of the roundtable for the farewell show. Bob Sector of Cranes, Brian Bernadoni from Aurelius Public Affairs, Eric Elk, Government Relations Director at HNTB, Amanda Vinicky at WTTW Channel 11. Um, we are going to, uh, when things kind of reopen a little bit, uh, we will have a more uh, informal gathering, I think, uh, downstairs at the Billy Goat to mark their opening with you guys. All right? So. Heck yeah. Plenty of cheers to you, Rick. Thanks for everything. You're awesome, and so has this been. So thank, thank you, you very guys. much, guys. No, thank, thank you. Your honor. Uh, I just wanted to take a few closing minutes here for some final personal thoughts. Uh, first of all, there are a lot of thank yous that I want to extend. I want to thank Steve Cochran, who conceived of this idea years ago and convinced the folks here at WGN that there was an outlet for this kind of show. 
I want to thank WGN. It's the station I grew up listening to when my parents had it on all the time. I had the privilege of appearing over the years with a variety of gracious hosts, and then to have the chance to have my own show on it, well, that just kind of brought things full circle. You've got this station, its history, its listeners. There's such a legacy here, and I'm proud to have been but just a small little piece of it. I want to thank Di, my daughters, Amanda and Kate, for putting up with me, my close friends, uh, the extra time that it always took to devote to the show. I want to thank my daughter, Amanda, for serving as the show's musical director and picking out the theme song, Dark Blue, from Jack's Mannequin. I also want to thank the hundreds of guests who've appeared on the show over the years. Each of them brought what I thought was something special or unique, some great insight that I thought would be valuable in evaluating what's happening here in the city, in the county, or the state. And I think the fact that politicians, regardless of party or office, agreed to appear on this program reflected that this was a special venue and that they'd get a fair shake and that this was more than just trying to get a sound bite. But to me, the biggest thank you of all goes out to all of you, the listeners. It's been a very special feeling to know that all of you invited me into your homes, your cars, your ears, and your brains. And I appreciated the effort to provide what I think is important information about the issues and the politics that are going on around us today. The issues will continue long after this show, so will the politics. But I think the challenge for all of us is to try to listen, seek out alternative viewpoints, even ones that you consider are outside of your comfort zone. Education never stops, nor does the evolution of our city, of our state, and our nation. Now, my work will continue as a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and I'd like to take this chance to encourage everyone to make an investment now in your local journalism. It's needed now more than ever, and that's a thought that I make as I embark starting today on a week one of a mandatory three weeks of job furloughs at the newspaper. Now, over the years, some people have said that maybe I haven't been as critical as I should have been towards some of the guests who have appeared here. But I viewed my role on the radio as different from one that I do for the newspaper. Frankly, questioning people for the newspaper is a bit of watching sausage being made. It can get pretty ugly. It can take time. It can be very unsatisfying. Or it can be very, very satisfying. For the radio, my view was that I considered the show a forum. People came on as a guest and were allowed to present their views. You listened. You got to make up your own minds. And I've always given you, the listeners, all the credit. One last thing. It's not my job to advocate on issues or for candidates. It's my job to report on them. There's only one thing I view myself as an advocate for, and that's the truth. And we need the truth today more than anything. And telling the truth will never make you an enemy of the people. So again, thank you.